And we're back with the, the Break the Bell podcast, very first ever bonus episode, because uh, we got our first um, interviewee on, which is uh, Remzo Martinez. Uh, he We recorded a good show earlier this evening with Bill. Bill couldn't be here for the bonus content. He had to cut out a little earlier. But um, I just want to talk a little bit more with, with Remzo, because... Uh, a lot of stuff he's doing, a lot of stuff he had, he's had his hands in um, throughout the last, what, 10, 10 years or so. And so um, I just think there's you, you're just an all-around interesting person. So um, I, I, I'm, like a, I'm like a millennial Forrest Gump. <laughs> That's the only way I could really describe things. Do you run really fast, too? I, no, but I find myself in strange situations nonetheless. That's that's interesting. How, uh, I, I did want to get into... Um, but we didn't really have time in the episode. Like, how did you how did you get to the D.C. area, and how did you get into what like politics and campaign trail, the stuff you don't do now? How did you get into that? I uh, so I I grew up uh, in an active duty military family, and my dad was stationed at the at the Pentagon at the time in two thousand eight. And two thousand eight was interesting because I had only been back in the country for about. Uh, two and a half years. My, uh, we were in Australia from 2003 to 2005. Moved to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, for about a year. Then we did another year, year and a half at a uh, at Fort Hood, Texas. And then when we finally showed up to Virginia, it was right around election season for the 2008 cycle. And uh, I was in honor civics class where we had to do a lot of current event stuff. But, you know, it, it was interesting because, one, I was always somewhat politically minded. In, in Australia, I mean, we had by the time we moved there, we had just, like, invaded Iraq. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, ironically, Saddam Hussein was captured on my birthday, <laughs> September 13th, 2000. I'm sorry, December 13th, 2003. Yeah, so December 13th. And, um, you know, because of that, being in a foreign country, people often – talk around you because you're a little kid who happens to be American and you don't understand what's going on. But when I came back to the, to the United States, I realized, you know, something's happening. Then like around 2012, um, like the, the 2012 election was going on. I knew that I was a Republican because my family was Republican, but I, I, I was just really trying to figure out, like, what do I actually believe in stuff? And I talk about this in the first couple chapters of my first book, Stay Away from the Libertarians. But, um, I mean, I, I knew I wanted to get involved in politics because it just seemed interesting. And I guess I was a Republican just because that's what we were. Mm-hmm. So by the time I uh, volunteered for Mitt Romney's campaign to get some community service hours done for school— but before I could really knock on one door, make a phone call, or deliver a single sign, I kind of ghosted them because as I really looked into it, I realized that Mitt Romney was just really kind of like a boring white Obama. And uh, <laughs> I, I wasn't really cool with that. I mean, seeing the Tea Party wave and everything and learning about a little bit about Ron Paul at the time, it, it really made me question the, our, our conventional thinking when it comes to politics that and around the same time and i didn't mention this in the book i don't, I don't remember why but this was a big thing we have i have a dog that we got while we were in texas and in fairfax county virginia where i live now if uh if you have a dog that you did not get in fairfax county you have to pay a, a tax on them every year it's like 20 bucks what but basically i was like why do we have to pay a tax for our dog because we didn't get our dog in the county and I basically looked at the laws, and basically, if you don't pay the tax, 
Um, they'll send cops to go basically confiscate your dog and you basically avoid all ownership of it. And if they're not adopted within several weeks, they'll put them down. So basically it was pay us or we'll kill your dog. And that, that really got me just really freaked out because I realized that that tax alone wasn't going towards like animal shelters or anything. It was really just more, it was really just a way to, you know, take money from the public. So around that time, I realized that, you know, there's a lot to this world and I've got a little bit of an interest in it. So around 2015, um, I started uh, an internship at FreedomWorks. I got my start in uh, blogging and where I really kind of cut my teeth was education reform. I wrote a lot about the Republican candidates and running for president at the time and how they had basically become Common Core's baby daddy and they didn't like that. So I, I mean, I was ticking off a lot of the of the wrong people or the right people in some cases. So a lot of those articles started going viral. I started getting a little bit of a following from like the the anti Common Core uh, school reform crowd. And then in uh, later the year, I, I I worked on my first Republican. I'm sorry, I worked on my first Libertarian campaign. My first campaign ever working for my brother. Um, I was the I was the policy guy on that, so I was writing the platform, doing research, but also just knocking on a ton of doors and stuff between that. Uh, went off to Liberty University, walked, worked for a ton of campaigns between then, and um, you know, around 2016, that was really like my my pinnacle year. I worked on a on a congressional race that ended up winning here in Virginia. And after I graduated from college, I started doing political consulting for myself. And I, I mean, between that, I had worked for Republicans, independents, libertarians, really anyone that was a liberty person. And uh, it was just it was just crazy. Like, I always thought that maybe I'd be I'd be reforming certain laws and, you know, doing a lot of good. But I just found myself running around constantly just just trying to look for work. And it was uh, I mean, it was a crazy couple of years. It um it taught me a lot about myself, but you know it's it, it it's wild when you're doing it so young and you're seeing massive highs and massive lows. My uh my last campaign, I got paid uh two hundred dollars for a day's work to go drive six hours out to West Virginia, work for a day for a friend of mine who was running for re-election in the West Virginia House of Delegates, and as I came back you know, driving another six hours back between food, gas, lodging and other stuff and paying off some bills. I was basically like, oh, great. Like, do I want to wait and do this again? This was in the 2018 midterms. And at that point, I was like, you know, I think I need to reset my life. So I I got a I got a minimum wage job stack, uh, you know, stocking shelves at GameStop. Okay. Well, I was writing my uh, my second book, How to Succeed in Politics and Other Forms of Devil Worship. And after that, I was like, you know, I got to. I got to move on. And there's a there's a joke in it somewhere where somebody said, if you if you don't succeed in politics, go into media. And if you don't go into media, if media doesn't work out, go into organized crime. So, <laughs> so you're, you're the halfway there. Yeah. <laughs> you're two thirds of the way to organized crime. So um, when you get into that, we'll definitely have to get you back on the show because that will be an <laughs> interesting show. <laughs> so um, your book uh how to succeed in politics. The main character is that based around the experiences you had working these ca- campaigns. I'm sure a lot of your experience went into it, but it was it like how the first chapter explains, like sleeping in a car for an hour or two before going on to something else, like basically not sleeping at all. And what did did you walk into a place in sweatpants and a and a sport coat? Was that a, 
actual experience or is that just something you came up with? So um, to, to kind of break it down to a two-parter, uh, th- there was uh, there, there were a few shows that I went on to talk about it and they basically asked me, like, are you Art Brown in the book? Like, mm-hmm. is this basically a fictional version of your life? And right. what I tell them is, no, I, I am not Art Brown. This is not my life. But there's a ton of stuff inspired by the the three years that I was fully into politics that are in the character and in the, in the story of art. But um, yeah, I mean, the character of art Brown is really based off uh, like three people. I mean, part of it is me, but part of it are, are, you know, one is a a former politician I worked for and the others are really just other uh, campaign staffers and fundraisers I worked for. I mean, it's just, the, the wild shit you get into when you do this full time, it's it's stuff that only has really been tapped on in certain aspects in popular culture, but no one really went into it the way I did. So really, art is the the type of person who's really more towards like the end of your political career if you're not successful. That's mm-hmm. why he's having to sleep in his car and he's, I mean, he, he's he's combining like Red Bull and coffee and Jim Beam to get himself going and he's doing stupid shit. But, uh, you know, the answer to the, the next part, yeah, I mean, I slept in my car a lot. My car throughout college and throughout my time as a consultant was a 2014 Kia Soul. And what's great about that is that it's compact enough to really, you could drive it anywhere, but it also makes a really nice bed if you fold out the seats in the back. And that thing was basically my mobile uh, apartment. The one campaign where I was constantly traveling was the congressional race I, I staffed on. Um, in 2016, I mean, I had, I had several, uh, different, you know, uh, outfits depending on the situation. I had a ton of food back there. I slept in there quite a bit. And, um, you know, there was one situation where I walked out into a meeting, not realizing that, yeah, I I happened to still have the sweatpants I was sleeping in on. And it's one of those moments where it's like something out of your straight nightmares. Like we've all had those dreams where it's like you you, sh- you go to school and you're naked or something right. or you're walking somewhere and your clothes disappear. This was basically a little bit short of it because I, I knew that I, what I wanted to do is I wanted to sleep in just the, at least the top half so that when it was time for me to wake up like minutes before I had to walk in, I could switchly, I could quickly switch out my pants. But in that moment, it's like I'm still waking up but I'm not really there and I just don't think about it. So somebody looks at me and they're like, really Remso, that's what you're going to show up in. <laughs> and I, I, I just had this moment where it's like, I can't let them know that this is how I am right now. So I just looked at them and I said, I'm starting a new trend. So and you just I, played it I off. Did, I, I did a full like three hour, you know, phone bank session looking like a freaking moron wearing a, a button-down <laughs> shirt, a tie, and a jacket. And then my, I think it was my Liberty University sweatpants. It was it was wild. And I, I did it with uh, with absolutely no shame because at that point, I'm like, what are they going to do? Tell me to leave. They right. need me. Yeah. What, so I, I did it. I wish I had a photo of that, honestly. That would be, I mean... <laughs> There's got to be uh, video surveillance of that bu- building somewhere. You you can get somebody to pull like pull up because that that I mean some I know somebody pick. definitely like took a photo of me like I'm leaning I've got like a bag of 
like Taco Bell scraps and I'm making these phone calls and I just look like shit. And I know there were, there were, there were like some high schoolers that were volunteering. I know they definitely took a photo and sent it to their friends. Like, look at this moron. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was one of those moments. I think that was really, that was, that was, that, that was probably the best time to be a consultant because I'd been working on independent and libertarian campaigns. This is the one time I was working for a Republican who was actually winning yeah, and, and could win despite some money. it being yeah I mean despite it being a year where no one knew that Trump would win and no one knew that Republicans would take a majority in both the House and the Senate this was like the one race where it's like if I need to be good at something I might as well be really good and be really down and in the cause here because this is like my final stand if I can't win this it's it's just not going to happen mm. and eventually we we do win and, um, you know, all those nights sleeping in a in a car and, you know, looking like a freaking um, mannequin that someone just threw some random clothes <laughs> on it. It didn't work out. But like in that moment, I'm like, you know, this is a ride or die situation. All right. I like it. Um, it sounds like um, you look back on that. Was was that a moment you realized you didn't like? doing this shit or did, was it still several years until you came to that conclusion because that that to me almost would be like your turning point when you look down at yourself and realize you're wearing your sweatpants and your jacket and you feel like shit it's just like what what am i doing it it was definitely one of those things that i will not realize until about a year out like once mm -hmm. i graduated from school and I realized that, you know, everyone has already kind of like sliced up their their piece of the cake and there's nothing left for you. Mm -hmm. That's why I looked back and it's like, look what I was doing. Look what I was willing to do for you people. Right. And uh, I mean, that's one of the reasons why, like, I, I had I had art set up at that point at the beginning of the book, because that was really that was really the beginning of the end for me. And I wanted it to kind of, you know, echo that point. And there was just nothing I could make up that was more ridiculous than what I had actually uh, been through. So that part definitely, uh, you know, inspired that portion. And that's the part that uh, a lot of people who are in politics who have read that part of the book, like what was funny was was when they would message me or call me and they're like, dude, I used to do the exact same shit. I had an incident where a guy um, used a pizza box as a blanket one time <laughs> sleeping God. in his car. And everyone was like, well, at least you had a key of soul at the time. You had room to space out. But, you know, like I, I thought that that would just be my moment. But what I found out from other people who had done similar stuff to me was that that was a lot of moments. I was just the person that talked about it. And people who aren't in that atmosphere don't get that that side of it. They they see politicians in the political atmosphere as these like high dressed, usually high paid people, or even like you you had talked about House of Cards. You see like the people that work the staff for them. They they're pretty well taken care of. They're not they're not living out of their cars, having people hand them dollar bills because they think they're hobos. But um, I. Clearly, that's not the norm for people like you who are doing the work, doing the legwork, and getting paid next to nothing most of the time. Yeah, I mean, if you're what, what I've learned is that if you're a good campaign manager, you're going to convince people to do basically everything under the sun for hopefully for free. Mm hmm. 
And the promise is always going to be what you get out of it afterwards. Now, what you don't see is that that campaign manager is getting paid a shit ton of money, and some of his friends who he invited on are trying to basically suck as much from the campaign as possible. So by the time it really gets down to people like me, I was a campus chairman for the Liberty University chapter, so I was running uh, all the all the weekend door knocking and all the phone banking at the time. Um, you know, by the time it got to me, it was you're getting paid an experience. And that was one of those things for, for me that I was like, well, it's better than nothing. Right. For art, um, you know, I pushed him a little bit up in years for a little bit. So, like, in, in the book, he's basically getting paid just enough to, to eat shit and put gas in his car. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was really it. When I did eventually start getting paid for campaigns, I thought I was making a lot of money. I was comparing that to not having made money. So, you know, I would get paid like $200 a week for like uh, 40, 80, 120, 160, 200 hours worth of shit. Like I I was, it was, I mean, that's, that's like several weeks because the the math is not, but I would work like, you know, more than 40 hour weeks for like basically beneath minimum wage. Mm -hmm. Like at at one point I looked at the math and I realized I, how, how do I not have enough money at the end of the month? And it's like I'm getting paid like the equivalent of like three fifty an hour. Yeah. Like, oh my God, there are people at McDonald's doing better than me. Right. And you know, they keep kind of dragging the carrot along. It's like you just gotta keep doing it. You gotta do this. This is temporary. Put and, your time in. You know, you, you wanna be a good you wanna be a good team member. You'll you'll get there. And I mean, by the time you get there, there there's nothing left. It's like you show up and it's like the party's already done. All the beer is gone. There's a dead drunk person in the corner and everyone just took all the food. And uh, it, it was those moments where I was really like, is this working? Because you get into this not because you want to obtain power and everything, but because you want to make change. And politics is the way that you make change. But it's really hard to change the world when you can't feed yourself. And with uh, with art in the book, I mean, that that really is one of those things where he's he's a bit he represents for, for me, at least my my contribution to him. He really represents this, the time in my life where I began to work for people, not because I liked them or I believed in them, but because it's what I was good at doing. And it was just what kept me going and giving me a sense of purpose for a little bit. And it was at that point where it was like, I don't care who I work for anymore. I don't care what they're doing. I don't care what I have to do. I just need to do this because I I need someone to tell me what to do Mm -hmm. in a way. And with with art, that is very much the case. And you see, that's how he he works with people. Um, You know, his, his dream team of his two friends, Colin and Dwayne, they are really more at the beginning of their experience. So art has basically taken them under their wing. And, you know, I, I had some folks that, um, you know, were, were younger than me who were getting involved with it. So I got to really take them under my wing and show them how the sausage is made. And uh, that was the worst decision I ever made in my life because, um, you know, I've got one kid that's actually doing good and he sees that he doesn't want to become like the people he's surrounding himself with. So he gets smart and he leaves. Mm-hmm. I have another person that becomes basically more callous and more calculating than I was. And he completely screws me over and runs off and does something else. So, I mean, though, you know, those people 
people kind of inspired Colin and Dwayne. And I know you're 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 reading the beginning of the book, so I don't want to spoil too much. Mm-hmm. But like you you get to see where different people go when they have opportunities and when they're faced with moral crises, because that's the other thing. Like how far the the whole purpose of you know art story and really it's told through the parallel of George Wallace. How far are you willing to go to succeed if you lose yourself in the process? Because while I would definitely not wish I could go back in time and prevent myself from doing those things, I'm glad I did them. And I'm glad that, you know, I I have that story of my life because it made me better as a result of it because I had a lot of those things happening. And there's nothing like being like 21 years old and being told you have to help raise $80,000 within a week. Yeah, like that, you just you pressure. just you're you're put with these experiences that are just insane. Mm. And it's um like it's wild and I mean a, a lot of different stories from people go into the characters within Art Brown's storyline. So a lot of that stuff is inspired by stuff that I dealt with or what other people dealt with, but I mean it, it's a, what what I find myself you know, really freaking out with as I'm writing the story is the fact that, you know, anything going on between Wallace and his people is either identical to the stories that, you know, inspire the fictional side of it, or they're even more ridiculous. So there were some points, some, some points in the book where people are asking, like, did Wallace really do that? And I'm like, I didn't edit any part of his life. There's one little story in there that is somewhat fictitious because I had to mesh things but i include that in the notes of the book to show you where that one part is so i describe why i did that so there's Mm. that one part but other than that i mean real life is crazier than anything i could make up yeah yeah it's definitely true um yeah it, it it's interesting because like i said i just started the book but you definitely get a sense of real life in it like a real life experience like the the way it's laid out and you can almost put yourself into the character, even even though I've never dealt in politics or anything like that. You can put yourself, and you can you can relate to it too in almost anything. So so I mean I love what I've read so far. I'm definitely gonna finish the book, and then we'll maybe have to get you on it and talk a little bit more about so you don't spoil it now. Um, I did want to because you were talking about how the main character is later on in his years. For you, it's what seems nice is that you came to the conclusion this wasn't for you early enough in life that you have other options that you can you can go pursue. Somebody that's later on in their years like him that's been doing it for years, I, I it'd be a lot harder to pull back, pull away from something you put dedicated so much of your life into. So um, it's inter- it's nice that you got out now because you're what in your mid twenties. I yeah I'm I'm 25 right now and I mean I I often joke like I had to get a, a procedure done on my neck a mm-hmm. few years ago and um one of the nurses was like this is something we see in like people way older how are why are you dealing with this and it's like it's not about the age it's about the miles yeah. and uh, I mean what what I tell people is like within that five year block of time I I'm sorry like yeah like five year yeah five years um that five year block of time like I. I, I dealt with like years of experience, very condensed because I mean, 
I, I didn't see things as like weeks or months or quarters or semesters. I was in, I was in undergrad while I was doing it half the time. Mm-hmm. I saw it as campaign cycles. And campaign cycles can either move very fast or very slow. And when you're having to change your complete focus and your mission from one campaign to another, it's just, you know, time slows down. And I mean, one of the things I emphasize in the book a lot, a lot of people say that they feel extremely tired when they read it, not because it's boring, but because they feel worn out. Mm -hmm. Like you're dealing with a lot of shit in a very condensed amount of time. And one of the problems that art deals with that, I I try and really focus in on him is that, you know, the dude never sleeps. Right. And when he does sleep, he's having problems sleeping. One thing that a lot of people thought was maybe too exaggerated, but they wondered why it was in there is there's, there's a lot of um, problems with, uh, you know, alcohol, drugs, and, and pills in the book. And the one thing that really shocked me in witnessing other people was just the the lengths they'll go to to stay awake because it's really like warfare in a way. That's mm-hmm. that's how they treat it. It's a, I have to do anything and everything in my power to fight this person who's this unrelenting enemy who is stronger than me and smarter than me and faster than me, despite the fact that they're probably dealing with the exact same stuff and they're thinking the same thing about you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I saw people do some crazy shit to stay awake or even just to fall asleep. It's like, you need all this stuff to help you stay awake. They need all this shit to help you fall asleep. Um, I mean, I saw people just like, I, I, so much pills. That was the thing. Caffeine pills were the things that I saw a lot of people talking. I mean, just tossing back like fucking M&Ms. That was just something that shocked me. It's like, how are you still alive? Yeah, no shit. And it's one of those things like I, I, I've, I've worked all these different types of jobs. I've never seen it so prevalent as much as I saw it there. And, and it's um, it, it's just it, it's one of those things where it's like this is not normal. This is not normal for any other job. Right. And, you know, back in the 80s, it wasn't the caffeine pills. It was probably cocaine. They were all all or, or quaaludes. Yeah. 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 So that's crazy. Um, I, I couldn't even imagine it. And just like you said, it, it exhausts me thinking about it, let alone actually experiencing it. And it's, it's nice you pulled back from that and realized, hey, um, I, I want to have a life here. Um, so what what's in the future for you? Because uh, you finish your book, new podcast, it's almost just like a fresh start for you, like finished your old podcast, start a new podcast, start another new podcast. Besides that, what what's going on with you? What are you getting into? Um, I got my I got my TV show that I do with my brother, and and ironically, and this is where the worlds kind of combine. One of our cameramen and other investigators, Brian Sujane, and Brian Sujane is like the cool uncle for my brother and I. He was actually the first candidate I worked for. Really, he was running as a libertarian for House of Delegates in Virginia, and we've been friends since. And we got him interested in the whole paranormal. Uh, field, and he's been an investigator with our group, Argos Paranormal, since 2018. So to get to do this with Brian is really is really awesome. And uh, we got season two coming out, and we're we're prepping for season three. We got some episodes already lined up for season three, but we're trying to find locations for other episodes. So we're gonna do a third season of The Witching Hour. And, uh, you know, right now with On the Run, it's it's great because it, it did provide me that fresh start. But one thing I'm doing that I didn't do with the old show is that this is a continuous show. 
um, I used to take seasons off, so I would do like 28 episodes and then I would take like a few months off to try and do all that. Now I'm doing two episodes a week. I've got these great connections. I've got great topics. I, I'm better at monologuing, so I'm more comfortable doing solo episodes. But, you know, with what I do at the Washington Times, I mean, I have great insights and great connections with people who can really help my audience connect to a lot of things that uh, they, they want to hear about. So, I mean, just focusing on that show and then the podcast, um, I mean, just this and actually getting to live my life and really start investing in myself again, it's just, you know, a, a giant relief, even despite the difficult times we're living in. I mean, I'm, I'm living for myself so that I can benefit others. And it's it, it's something I don't feel guilty saying uh, that that's something that they do in politics quite a bit. Like they guilt you into everything, especially when you're working for free or you're working for nothing. They say, if you don't put in enough effort, we're going to lose. And then you've just failed everybody. And then communists are going to take over <laughs> and it's it's going to be like the worst hellscape you could possibly imagine. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I understand people have like bad bosses and everything. But I mean, like like I say, I was treated much better as a minimum wage GameStop employee than I ever was as the campaign manager for a campaign. Really? Yeah, that's nice. When I when I was getting paid bigger money, mm. like it's it, it's such a it's such a weird world. But I mean, that's what what does it say about the people that do it full time? Like they they're willing to go to f crazy lengths to have power and authority over other people. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, the people that end up doing it are the people that put up with that shit, put up with that shit, then they turn into the people that are giving the shit to people like you down the road. It's like, that's their end goal, is I want to be that guy, instead of you being like, wow, this this guy's kind of a piece of shit human. The people that make it are the ones that are like, I want to be that piece of shit human. And it, it it's interesting to me, and it's bizarre. And it's it's the same in the military, it seems like. You're in the military, I was in the military. It seems like the ones that make it a career, not all of them, I'm not going to say this about all of them, but a lot of people that end up sticking around end up being the people you don't want to work for because the people, a lot of the good ones, at least when I was in, are the ones that see all the bullshit and they're like, you know what, I, this ain't for me, I, I want to pull out of this. And then the people that stick around are the people that end up being the bullshit half the time. Like I said, I'm not bashing on the military I support the military, and I, 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 there are a lot of good people still in, but you always end up working for that one higher up. It's just like, how the hell did you even make it? It's because all the good ones yeah. realize, yeah, I, I don't want to do this, and I don't want to be that guy. I had a guy who, um, I, I, I had a guy who I worked for lower down the chain on that last congressional race. And I, I worked like, I worked three. Yeah, I worked, I worked four campaigns after that, two consecutive during a, during a primary year. But I had this one guy who I just remember looking at him and I'm just like, how the fuck have you gotten anywhere? He was this, <laughs> he was a bit of this moron, but he was just somehow really connected. And what really kind of shocked me was that he ended up working not just on the campaign, but he had previously worked in the legislative affairs in the Virginia State Senate. And that's a nonpartisan role that's full time. That's where you're basically helping uh, Virginia State Senators basically coordinate how they do research and how they actually get the stuff done. So it's a full-time nonpartisan staff. He left that to go work on this campaign. And then after the campaign, he went to go back 
to his regular job. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys who was one of my direct supervisors told me to apply for an open position in his office. And he never spoke to me, but when I spoke to the guy who recommended me to do that, and he, I had, I asked him to go talk to the guy. The guy said, "Yeah, Rems is a good guy, but he's too partisan." <laughs> and I'm like, "What the fuck? This is literally the first time I've worked for a Republican in my entire life." Right. And I worked for this fucker who <laughs> left his job to go do a campaign to make a ton of money real fast. They came back to his nonpartisan job. I did this and, for you. <laughs> yeah, and I, I just remember, like, what the fuck? Now, a normal person who's sane and emotionally balanced would say, fuck that guy, now it's time to move on to something else. Mm. But I gave him the benefit of the doubt that maybe, and this is where you know the, the grooming and the, the, sh- the self-shaming comes in, maybe I didn't do good enough. Right. So I end up doing some other stuff that he's dipping his hands in. And then when the when the guy that we are all working for gets to Congress, um, that dude ends up going and working for him as his chief of staff. So I actually get called up to a, to a meeting and he's like, oh, yeah, Rem, so send me your resume. We'll hook you up. What I found from somebody that worked across from him as a secretary was that when he printed out when she printed out, because I emailed it to her, when she printed out my resume and she was going to go give it to him, he looked at it and he says, is that Remso's resume? And she's like, yeah, you want it. He's like, okay, take it and put it in the trash. Oh, my God. What a garbage human. It, it, it came down to he was intimidated by me and he he was worried that I would end up being competition to him. Wow. And I found that from several other people. And it was one of those moments where that was when I was finally like, you know what? It's hard to break down these walls when they keep putting them back up faster than I could break them down. Right. And it was, I mean, it was just lies and excuses. And, you know, he was just the chief of staff. People don't really realize this, but being a, a politician, yeah, it offers a lot of opportunities and perks and weird weird privileges but if you could be part of the staff the unelected class of the the people that are actually writing the legislation and the people that are coordinating the deals on how the votes are going to be done and you're not in the cameras those people are really the ones that run washington and you know to a certain degree if you're a good chief of staff that knows how to intimidate people into you know supporting a bill or re redrafting something to meet somebody else's needs there's a lot of power in that because you don't have to deal with the public outcry. You can always just say, well, you know, it's the it's the congressman's fault, and I'm a, I'm a good employee. I'm going to listen to the congressman. The congressman rarely write the own laws that they want to go ahead and push out. Hmm. Really? So, I mean, people people will do just about anything. And that, you know, my story, it sounds bad. That's I, I got out clean compared to some people. Sometimes, I mean, people will go ahead and blackmail you, lie about you. I mean, I, I know people that got kicked out or booted out of Washington for doing really nothing other than not liking something. And because they're not completely down with what needs to be done, they, they get burned really fast. And that's a, that's something you see with art. That's something you see with George Wallace. Mm-hmm. Either, you know, art gets burned a lot. Sometimes Wallace is the one burning people. Right. And it's, it's that, it, it, it's that constant, like that, that's what made me sick. I remember I used to get sick a lot. 
like a lot. And what I realized was it was my stress was basically destroying my immune system Mm -hmm. because I was so tired. I was so sick. I was so constantly fearful of what was about to happen around the next corner that, I mean, I I was my own worst enemy in that. That... So around the time that that happened, I mean, it was, it was just one of those moments where it's like, I I have to, I have to move on. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that mix topped with no sleep, topped with eating like straight garbage. I can't, I can't imagine what that had to have done to your uh, immune system and just your physical um, condition. Because uh, you hear of people all the time just they 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 go to shit just from high stress and and all that. So, man, I'm so glad you pulled out of it. It doesn't sound like <laughs> doesn't sound like it would have been good for you to stay in there for the long run you probably wouldn't have had a very long run if you stayed in there too too long i can't imagine the uh the life expectancy of somebody in that position is too incredibly long you, you see um th- there are a lot of young people who look extremely old mm-hmm. and they're only in two places they're in politics or they're in the military Yeah, i was gonna say the military is the same way yeah, like I, I remember, I, I saw this one, uh, this one specialist. I thought he was in his late thirties. He had massive wrinkles, gray hair, spoke like he had seen like the beginning of time, and had like five <laughs> kids. And I found out he was twenty four. Oh, I'm like, oh my god! But I saw that a lot in a, a lot in uh, the the political consultants and the campaign staffers. Like a lot of them. They, they looked old, mm-hmm. and that was the thing. Like, they had wrinkles that were premature. A lot of them had gray hairs. You looked in their eyes, and they've got bloodshot eyes. Like, these Goodness. people look sick. And, I, I mean, it's uh, if they're smart, what they do is they, they go and they serve on the Hill for a few years. Then what they do is they get out and they become lobbyists. And then if you're a lobbyist, like, if you're good at what you do, Man, like it, it's all worth it because you're getting money for nothing. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's scary in a way, but the people that constantly hang around in politics, like those consultants, I mean, there are very few of them. And then what they become is they become like the scariest people on earth because they're almost like ghosts. It's like you only hear about them in like whispers and gestures. And if you ever meet them, they're just the people that you think if, if this guy wants to have me like killed somewhere <laughs> near the Potomac Harbor, like he's, he's going to have it done. These are the people that go in and they're the ones that are coordinating who comes to the smoke filled meetings. And, um, I mean, what, what scared me was a few years before I finally ended, it was my senior year of college. I remember a sophomore that I, I remember hanging out with, he told me he wanted to become a political consultant mm. and I asked him why. And he's like, because I'll never be out of, I'll, I'll never be out of a job. And I'm like, <laughs> you're, you're out of a job if you lose. Yeah. And sometimes you can be out of a job if you win. Right. Like that's, a, that's a stupid thing to want to be. It's, it's absolutely horrendous, but he had no clue who he was getting into. He thought he could be the guy to go ahead and craft a message and, you know, ultimately do do good, have good policy. It's going to help people's lives. But what you begin to realize is, you know, people complain about voters not caring about policy. You know who cares about policy even less? Politicians. <laughs> That's they don't they don't care. No, no. They just say what needs to be said to get them in that spot. And I, I'm a firm believer that most of them either don't have morals or they don't believe the morals that 
their party, they only they only say certain things to get on that ticket. Like, who would have thought that um, Donald Trump was a born again Christian before he tried to get on the Republican ticket? I mean, who like who actually believes that? Who actually believes he is what he says he is? No, they just say what they need to just to be on that party line and be on that ticket. And so, like, like I said, I don't, I don't believe most of them even have morals at that, at that stage because I I thought, yeah, I thought it was funny a few weeks ago when he had the whole, uh, uh, church photo op and Mm -hmm. somebody asked him, uh, Mr. President, is that your Bible? And he said, it's a Bible, a Bible. It doesn't matter (laughs) whose Bible I, 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 I borrowed it from somebody. I got a Bible. Yeah, you know he probably he doesn't have a Bible, but um, maybe switch course a little. Um, I wanted to hear how you got kind of into podcasting. Was it because of all these experiences and political experiences? You just wanted to talk about politics, or or was it just for something a different route, or or what got you into it's, it? It's really been my my big goal in life to eventually get into you know, full-time broadcasting, actually have that be like the thing I do Mm full-time. And when I started the podcast in 2016, it was really as a, as a deficit I saw for, you know, giving people an actual public platform to speak on, because a lot of the problems that I had working for independents and working for libertarians was that you can't even get your local newspaper to do a story on you. I remember I was working for somebody and uh, we had um, a full-time comms person who we were paying to help us get media. And what we were told from somebody that worked for a paper called the Lynchburg News in Advance out in Lynchburg, Virginia, was that um, our candidate didn't ha- wasn't something that would bring them real news yet because we hadn't gotten enough petitions to actually be on the ballot yet, despite the mm-hmm. fact that we we were going to be on the ballot. Instead, what they did was they lo- they uh, covered a local um, uh I think it was a pancake festival downtown. Okay. I just I just remember hearing that, and I'm like, that is the biggest bullshit I ever yeah. heard in my life. So after that race, what I did was I realized I want to give a spotlight to third-party candidates. Now, the thing is, like early on in the podcasting years, podcasting, people really treated it like shit. It wasn't professional. The people mm-hmm. that were putting out podcasts, they were just not – putting out any effort at all to make it good and to make it marketable. They only cared about just existing. And it's like, you can't just exist. You have to do well. So I thought, you know, I have, I have a knowledge as to how the media works a little bit. I know what I want as terms of somebody that would have to work with candidates. So I started the Remster Republic really as a, as a podcast to promote third party voices. It evolved from there, but that's where it really started from. And as I continued to work in politics, it, it really expanded my network of people I can have on the show in terms mm-hmm. of the people that I got from the show. It helped me in other things. So it was almost like a weird incestuous relationship between I'm doing this to network as well as I'm doing this to also help provide attention for people I could potentially work with. So there were a lot of people in the very early days of like season one, for example, in 2016, where, you know, I could have a conversation of somebody and then let's say if they like me and they got a good amount of views, I might say, Hey, um, do you want to buy ad space? 
Right. That was a thing. And some of those people became clients. So it was always an honest relationship in that regard. But the fact that I was doing well on both fronts, it, it really worked out. The the things that I was good at doing in terms of what my political um, skill was, was that I was a good copywriter. I could write really good advertisements. I could write really good fundraising letters, really good emails. I could write really good scripts. My thing was writing. So that was really where I came in. I was good at that, and I was good at something called GOTV, get out the vote. Um, uh, yeah, get out the vote efforts. I could really coordinate volunteers and figure out where people needed to be and stuff like that. So it was my ability to write and my ability to organize that really kept me employed. And that transfers really well into podcasting. I mean, I had very non-traditional ways of advertising my podcast that really helped it work. And I mean, the Remster Republic was in the iTunes top charts for news and commentary like four times between 2016 and 2017. Wow. I mean, it, it was, it was crazy. It was crazy. Yeah. I mean, it was, I, I was not, I was not prepared for how fast things were moving. Right. But I mean, eventually when I left politics, that's when the, the podcast really began to kind of suffer because when that disconnect happened and I just had to be a commentator, you start to really, really grasp because, I mean, it's the problem with a lot of pundits. They try and turn into showmen. They try and overextend themselves. And at that point, like my, my heart just wasn't in it. And mm. I knew that that show was always just going to be a political show. But unless you're actually in the game of politics, you're going to suffer in that regard. So I still had some some great people on. I had Ron Paul on for my uh, 200th episode. Like that was a lot of fun. And towards the last uh, dozen episodes, I covered some of the really contentious uh, congressional races here in Virginia. Mm -hmm. I had like, I, I had at, at one point in the, in the sixth congressional district, I think I had every Republican who was running for Congress in that primary on my show. And it got to the point where they were reaching out to me because I was one of the top political podcasts in the state of Virginia. Oh, wow. Like everyone had – it's not that they wanted to talk to me. It's not that they even liked me. It's that they had to come to me because they knew that the people who are going to donate or volunteer or shape the course of their race are listening to my show. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, when you're like 20, 21, 22 going through that, that, that fills your ego a lot. Oh, I bet. Yeah, like I, it was, I was so unprepared for that. So it was like really weird. It's like I'm getting a lot of notoriety. I'm having people wanting my opinion and my advice on stuff. I'm also broke. I'm also, <laughs> uh, you know, just not the healthiest person physically mm -hmm. and emotionally. Like it was just this, this really weird yin and yang. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, you know, I, ha I had to ask myself that question. It's like, what is it to gain things that don't matter? Right. And, you know, once the politics went away, the, the podcast started fading. That's when I uh, took time off to, to work on my book. And then when I came back, it, it became the, the Remso Martinez experience. It was really just time for me to connect, reconnect with my fans because I, I, I kind of ignored my fans for a little while. Mm -hmm. And I was afraid that if I had done anything differently, they wouldn't listen. But what was funny was, I mean, I spent thousands of dollars building up the Remso Republic. When I rebranded it as the Remso Martinez experience, I didn't even tell people I was coming back. I just put episodes out. And what was freaking insane was that those were getting thousands upon thousands of downloads. Why? Because I just had to reconnect with my audience and listener base. And I was like, what do you want to hear? 
What do you mm-hmm. want to talk about? And, you know, when you're going through that and when you're just intending on delivering good content for the sake of good content, they, they will reward you because I, you know, I could bring in all these important people with all these massive audiences that I want to tap into. But if it's a shell conversation and it sounds more like a paid advertisement, like it's not worth it. Right. And and people do want to get their break from that sometimes, too. So um, if you're just doing a political thing, I, I, I mean, there are the people that want to talk and want to hear politics all the time. But that I, I can imagine there's a majority of more people that want to hear other things, too, not just politics 24-7. So I, I can see how um, your audience base would expand as your your interests and your topics expanded too the the best thing that i realized was also in some cases for some people this is the worst thing for me it was the most humbling thing when i realized that people were tuning in because they actually wanted to listen to me and not mm-hmm. just who i was talking to or not just what i was talking about like they actually cared about what i had to say or they wanted my opinion on something that was what changed everything because at this point, like, you know, my, the podcast is big. I did a solo documentary, um, about politics in Virginia. I started doing the TV show with my brother. The books are coming out. I'm getting more media attention through other stuff I'm working on. When I realized that, you know, people actually care about what I had to say, luckily I'd been through this experience of don't abuse your audience, be ethical and do it for the sake of it. But, you know, I I had to go through all of that to eventually get to that point where, wow, now I have this privilege of getting to have people spend uh, a part of their day listening to me. Mm -hmm. And if I if that had happened at any other point, I would have abused it and I wouldn't have been so grateful for it. Now I'm grateful for everybody and I I don't take it. you know, and have it fill up that that selfish side of me that reaches to people because I see it a lot. You have a lot of people that will start in uh, in punditry where they're just doing guest spots on other people's show, or they've got some viral op eds out, or they start a podcast that blows up real fast. And then what you see is they burn out really fast. Like they last maybe like a few months, and then you never hear from them again. It's that once they get a little taste of attention, or they get that little taste of actually getting to change how people think or act upon a certain thing, that they just become monsters, and they end up becoming their biggest casualty real fast. Right. And then you never hear from them again. Like I could give you names of people like within our, you know, right wing libertarian podcast sphere that were really big. And everyone was like, oh, these people are going to be on TV. They're going to be running for president. They're going to be changing the world. I could tell you their names and 10 bucks like you're, you'd be like, who the fuck are they? Right. Because they basically disappeared. Yeah. And, yeah. And I mean, what's funny is like I, I got an email today from somebody that's been listening to me for several years who is a talent manager in Germany. And now I'm working with this person to bring some of his clients who all fall within the criteria of things I talk about now on my show. That's crazy. I, I've mm-hmm. never been to Germany. <laughs> that, I've never been to Europe. really crazy. And now I'm interviewing somebody tomorrow who I'm actually a fan of, who opened a, a company that's doing a CBD products and stuff. I, I've been following this person. What I didn't realize this person had been listening to me for like two years. That is, and that's wild. The connections you get, or yeah. 
Um, yeah, that's got to be that's got to be pretty humbling um, to get people like that that are our supporters and like not just hey I, I I've kind of heard of I've heard of you and I've heard your show, but to be like a, an active listener all this time that that would be wild. Um, yeah, and I mean it's not it's not like thousands of people. I'd probably right. say like if I if I could call someone really a fan who like is actually like willing to listen to my shit, buy my shit, support my shit, it's probably like a hundred or so people. But you think of the power of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but like, still, yeah, and, it's and crazy. To some people, you're like, oh, you only got a hundred fans. To me, it's just like every. Everyone is important. To, uh, every fan is important to me. Like I, I get. I mean, we're only seven episodes in, so I'll get maybe a hundred views on YouTube or like forty or fifty downloads. And to me, that I I'm grateful for every single one of them. I'll, You're filling up a whole room. Right. Exactly. And, that, and that's how I see. It. I mean, you, you're starting, you're just doing this, you're building up. Like I, I've got thousands of people that follow me on Facebook. I've got hundreds of people that share my shit on parlor, the parlor app. I've got 11,000 people. Mm-hmm. I've got 11,000 people. I bet you only like four of those people actually give a shit about what I'm actually saying. Oh no, definitely not. And would actually support me on something. So despite like, you know, people see the outside of this, it's like, I I know enough people who are like Twitter famous. They've got like hundreds of thousands of people. They're Mm. lonely people. Oh yeah. They don't have people in their personal life. And then for the fans that they do accrue, they're either not healthy fans or they're not really there. But like, you know, the thousands of thousands of people that read my stuff, watch my stuff, listening to my stuff, it's like the same, like maybe hundred or so people that like if we need to go like, you know, like travel across the the Delaware, like like George Washington and go, you know, kill some German Hessians on Christmas <laughs> Eve. Like those are my people. I gotcha. But I mean, it came through years of this. And right. I mean, it was, it was, it started when I was 18 blogging and it's come to this point. And I mean, it's been crazy since after the Remso Martinez experience ended this year, I thought I was done with podcasting. So the fact that I'm even doing this now, and I'm I'm part of the We Are Libertarians network. I was listening to We Are Libertarians when I was in college. Yeah, so like it's crazy. I never thought I'd get so close to the point where they would reach out to me. They reached out to me, and I mean, I I, I say this as a thing. Like Chris Spangle, like he he will say, yeah, I reached out to Remso. So I take a little bit of pride in that. Mm-hmm. He's one of the top podcasts in. And not just the political sphere, but also on iTunes. His show is constantly on the top 100 list because he has a broad appeal of that. So to have been invited on to do this and to tap into his audience and the stuff that they've created, like, I, I can't take that for granted at all. That's, that's such a gift. No, and for somebody like him, for you be to be able to be like, I'll do this, but I'm going to do it my way. Um, that, that says a lot, too. A lot of... Um, how he feels about you and believes in you for you to just be like, look, I'm not going to do this political commentary thing anymore. I'm going to do it my way. And for him to still bring you in and be like, yeah, yeah, that's cool, man. You, you do your thing. So that that says a lot too, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been awesome since. I mean, I tell people, hey, it's the only non-political show on the political network. (laughs) But, you know, in in a way, it's like it's not it's not even also an introductory show to these things, because it's like if you've been paying attention to the world and stuff for a little bit and you really want to start talking about how you can apply certain lessons and principles and mindsets to your life, then this is more of like the the second level course. This Mm -hmm. is where you actually start making the changes and start asking the harder questions about things. Right. So, got a couple more minutes. I've been neglecting my kids long enough, but I, I did did want to ask, because um, you had mentioned that you had got into it when podcasting was, a lot of it was still pretty worthless. It was still, I wouldn't call it a new technology, but it was definitely I, I, I not mainstream. I would say it's misunderstood. I would yeah. say it's misunderstood back then. So... What about somebody like me that's getting into it now where podcasting is the new mainstream almost? Like iHeartRadio promotes the shit out of podcasting. It's super, super saturated. Is it still worth it to get into it now even with as saturated as as it is? Is there still – like you were talking – you getting into politics, it was almost no more room for you. Uh, when I first was thinking about starting a podcast years ago, I'm like, or not years ago, but like last year, that was kind of my thought towards this. Is like, is there even room for it? Is it is it even worth it to get into such a saturated um, atmosphere now? Uh, the the thing that a lot of podcasters, whether you're doing it from your house or whether you're going into a studio and you're getting a lot of corporate support, the one thing that separates good podcasts that will last versus the ones that don't are the the priority. And the priority should always be content first. Mm-hmm. If you create content, good content, good lasting content, people will, will reward you for that. If you're putting out stuff that people can tell or just kind of filler to basically advertise either an idea or a product or something or something, I mean, those people won't last. Mm-hmm. The other thing is you have a lot of people that forget their why. And for the why for a lot of people is I want to become famous. I want to get a Fox News gig and I want to get invited to the red carpet party. That's not the why. Those people do like three, four episodes and they don't get more than like 10 downloads and they think that they're just boring. In some cases, that's it. You have some people that think that just existing will make them popular. Like there are a lot of people that just do the basic interview shows. And if all your questions are, who are you? What do you do? Um, that's not, I mean, that's not doing anything. No one will listen to you for that because you're not becoming an influencer in the sense that you're a subject matter expert on something. Mm -hmm. I did that at the beginning, but I was also somebody that could contribute to the conversation because I was in that industry. So yeah, I'm talking to these politicians. Who are you? What do you do? Why are you running? And how can people support you? But I'm also pushing them on questions that you might not get from somebody that's like a college reporter or something. Yeah. So understanding the why um, you know, why are you doing it and being able to add something to the conversation is important. But I mean, above all, content is king. And, and the other thing that um, that intimidated me when I was getting back in, when my show ended, I would probably say I was in like the top five percent of or I, you know, I'll even say I was probably in the top 10 of libertarian podcasts in America when I was doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was underneath. Lines of Liberty, Tom Woods, Jason Stapleton program, We Are Libertarians. But I was right there. Like those people, you know, my my people listen to all of those shows. And mm-hmm. I had been on all those shows except Jason Stapleton. I worked for Jason Stapleton as a copywriter for a little bit in college. But like that, that's where that was. And 
you know, it, it was also really just them at that point. So, yeah, I'm in that top 10. I'm doing very well. There's also not much competitors because there aren't many libertarians who did podcasts talking about libertarian stuff. Mm-hmm. So when I ended in, you know, really the first time before I did the rebrand to the Remsen Martinez experience, there was a new podcast every week. And it was every, like everybody and their grandmother was starting a show about libertarian shit and politics and stuff. And some people had no business doing it. And then other people, uh, I, w- I won't say names because they didn't follow through with it. Some people who you would have thought would have made it last because they had everything going for them, they just got bored. Really? And that ended. So, like, I want to say a good, like, 90% of the people that came on to fill that void, and they were intimidating some of the other shows. Like, you know, I saw Mark Claire from Lines to Liberty, and he was like, man, they're just fucking everywhere now. Um, they're not here anymore. Yeah. But I am. And even though I took a break, even though I, I did a rebrand, even though I'm starting from episode zero and I'm having to build everything back up and I have to start all over again, it's like, hi, I do a podcast, will you subscribe to it? Even though I'm doing that, like I'm doing better. But at the same time, it's like I know that my content is compounding. I know that I've got a longer plan to keep it going, to keep it consistent. Like waves come and go, but it's that consistency factor and just focusing on the on the why and focusing on the creating good content first. That is what separates you from everybody else. So never never fear that, you know, there's not enough people out there. If you can get a good consistent like 100, 200, up to, between 100 and 200 downloads an episode, if you can keep that consistent every episode, yeah, you might not be growing at the rate you want, but man, you're, you're filling up a small, a small high school football stadium mm-hmm. at that point. Like that's consistency. There's more than enough people out there. There are 6 billion people on right. earth. And only like a few million people listen to podcasts. And every year, more and more people are listening to podcasts. I told somebody, it's like, are you telling me you can't convince 10 people a year, at least 10 people a year to Mm -hmm. listen to your show and leave you a review? Right. Like, you know, it's it's that scarcity mindset that prevents people. It's like on my worst days, I'm still getting good content out there. That will get people in the immediate time and it'll help people years from now. But I mean, I'm gaining that trust amongst followers. Mm-hmm. It's like when, you know, my, my first episode came out of the new show. Yeah, it wasn't reaching the numbers the old show did, but I'm also starting from zero. I didn't put really any effort into the promotion because they didn't have the time or the resources. Mm-hmm. But the people that pay attention to me, they were there and yep. they made they broke my expectations of it. But it's it's that years of trust. Yeah. And what's funny is I've got like four or five people that have been listening to me since August. No, since June 2016. June 2016 was when the show premiered. Mm -hmm. And I know people that have been listening to that since then. That's and it's it's insane. Mm -hmm. It's insane. And those are. Those are the real fans you were talking about, the ones that moved over to your new show with you without you even really self-promoting too much. They're just looking for you, like, what's Remzo doing now? And found, like, ended up migrating over. Those are your, like, real fans, not just the ones that hit, like, on a YouTube video or something like that. Um, the ones that are actually uh, seeking it out and one actually wanting to know what you have to say. 
Yeah, it's. I mean, th- those are my ride or die guys, and it it just came through consistency. And I mean, sometimes they didn't put out great stuff. Sometimes they put out a lot of effort into something that didn't do well. Like mm-hmm. my the first video series I actually did, it was uh, I would narrate over the videos, but it was a five part series I did with my brother. I think we did like two volumes of it, so ten episodes total. It was called Fanboys and Freedom, and basically what it would do was we would take uh, clips from movies and. Uh, TV shows like Rick and Morty, Captain America, Civil War, and we would talk about the the political concepts behind certain episodes and stuff. And we put a lot of effort into those videos. And we had some really cool people come in and narrate some of those episodes as well. Alex Merced, uh, he's now the former vice chairman of the Libertarian Party, Mark Clare. Like, we really pumped that shit up. And I'm like, this is going to help me enter, like, a whole new league. Mm-hmm. And that failed so epically really but it was recognizing this is a failure not because i didn't do a lot i didn't do enough of something but just because it didn't resonate yeah what was funny was people years later like i'll I'll call them out the foundation for economic education fee they they basically ripped off my show they basically (laughs) ripped that off and they i i would say that they did verbatim that they plagiarized in some stuff but it was when people were starting to care about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, long... I got some trickle on stuff, but it was basically like, well, I did didn't matter at that point. Does that piss me off then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does it piss me off now? Not as much. I mean, yeah. time heals it, but like, you know, what was funny are the people that saw it and they remember that. And it's, it, it it's so, it's so funny how something that mattered so much then really matters so little to me now. Yeah. Yeah, that's how you know you're you're growing and moving on is when when that shit that got to you before it's just like I don't care. I just I don't I don't give a shit. So yeah, well, I think I'm gonna have to get get going. Um, I think my daughter's texting me like five times, so um, I, I should probably go figure out what's going on. Hopefully, they haven't burned the rest of the house down. But um, definitely glad to have you on and wanted to get a little bit more. Uh, about you that we didn't get into on the main episode, but we couldn't make a three, four hour episode because that tends to upset people sometimes. So <laughs> check out Remzo and his book, or his two books again. Um, I'm going to post links in the show notes and, and links of where to find him and find his podcast and all that stuff. Um, definitely going to get you on here, at least in the near future, sometime. Uh, yeah, I don't know what's Absolutely. going on, but we'll definitely have to dig into some of these other stories that you have. Um, I appreciate having you on. It means a world world to us, um, helps us out a ton. And then, like I said, you're our, our first actual guest on here, so so it's kind of a, a big thing number for us. One. So, Yep, number one, <laughs> Remzo. So, um, yeah, check Remzo out. I'm going to uh, get that uh promo out that we're giving away one of your books so uh comment hey remzo if you didn't hear hear that in the first episode you can comment on this bonus episode too so just do that um check him out and i guess that's it this is bonus it's not formal so i'm just gonna let you go i guess remzo Sounds good, man. Great talking to you. Yeah, man. I'll I'll hit you up later this week with everything. So, uh, have a good night, and um, I'll I'll catch you next time. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate it. Talk to you later. Yep. Bye. You don't you don't ever really hear about that second half, the second chapter of his life. You only hear 
the first half with his segregational um, policies and um, trying to keep the schools segregated down in his state and all that stuff. You don't you don't ever hear you rarely even hear much about him being shot. It's not really the more popular um, assassination attempt stories that you really hear a lot of that. I mean, I just went through schooling. I took a history class. They talked about um, they talked about George Wallace and uh, I never heard any of this other the the second half that you're you're speaking of. It's only that first chapter that they're talking about. So it's yeah, I, I would I would have never known that he was shot if I hadn't watched Forrest Gump. Uh, yeah, like right, it, like yeah. in a fun like in a funny way, like you know it, it is comical to a degree, but like it's it, it's really one of those moments that I think not only changed his history as a person and how he would live the rest of his life, it also changed you know American politics. I mean, between when he's standing at the at the door of the admissions building at the University of Alabama, right. preventing, you know, American citizens who happen to be a different color than him from going and registering for classes to 1972, when he could, um, you know, potentially have been the Democratic nominee to go up against Richard Nixon. Right. I mean, that it gives that very strange possibility mm-hmm. that he could have been president. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you think him being shot prevented that is what pretty much single-handedly prevented him from going that, that route? If not that, I think it at least prevented him from being vice president. Um, You know, George McGovern was really one of those people that had a crazy story getting into the race and eventually being the nominee. He wasn't really the nominee until a bunch of other people dropped out. And it was because Mm -hmm. he kept his campaign slim and he kept his mouth shut on certain things. He was really the anti-war hawk. He wanted to bring people back from Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Uh, He got a lot of independent support from that. But I mean, you had a you had a lot of other people who were more prominent who were the front runners who dropped out for crazy reasons. And with, uh, with, with Wallace, I think that if he hadn't been shot, um, I don't really believe he could have still clinched the nomination. I think he was still too different than the delegates and a good chunk of uh, American Democrats at the time who Mm. would have supported him. But I mean, in 1968, when he ran as an independent, for president against Nixon and um, Herbert Humphrey, like he won the entire South. Mm-hmm, right. Like he could have pushed the the presidency into a, a dispute between uh, congressmen in the, in the House of Representatives, and it would have gone that way because the Electoral College would have been fractured. And you know, he realized at that point, he's like, wow, if I could take the South, imagine what I did if I had an entire party apparatus. Mm-hmm. So I think if he had not been shot. Um, George McGovern would have been forced by the Democratic National Committee to have at least taken him as kind of like this unity ticket in a way Mm -hmm. to unite, you know, really pro-civil rights Democrats in the North, but also not necessarily the the pseudo-segregationists in the South, but really like the poor working class white voter bloc in the South. I think it would have possibly... defeated nixon because there's a big crossover between nixon voters and um and wallace voters i mean a lot of wallace voters saw him as somebody defending christian values Mm -hmm. being a law and order president i mean tell me if this sounds familiar right right. in 1968 you have a former vice president going up against somebody who's very polarizing 
dealing in a year of massive riots, mm-hmm. a giant war, and right. other crazy things happening. Well, there's so we we've been covering all so many parallels yeah. with what's going on this year with back 68. in like '68 and yeah. and that that time frame. So it's interesting that you bring that up, even in this this situation of how um, this election season is also very much paralleling mm-hmm. the election campaign back then, time yeah. back then so that's really interesting and it's interesting because uh you know the, the front runner to that uh you know Johnson was in office and Johnson was the one that kind of oversaw the the Selma march you know like clashing with Wallace at that time and then also being the president that set up this whole welfare program for you know minorities and so it's like to go from that to being the democratic to Wallace then being would be night and day. I mean, it would just be insane. Yeah. I mean, one of the crazy things about Wallace is there, there's a reason why I don't think a lot of political historians like to talk about him after 1968. I didn't know that he was really, well, one, I knew he was shot running for something because of Forrest Gump. I didn't know that he was shot because he was running for president because he was caucusing in Maryland in 1972 until I read a book doing research for this one by uh, my, my favorite writer and journalist, um, Hunter S. Thompson. He wrote a, a collection of articles for Rolling Stone that's collected in his book, uh, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72. I think anyone that's interested in American history, not just journalism, but I mean, I think everyone who is into this stuff like we are should read Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail in 72. Hmm. But Wallace, I mean, uh, Thompson really covered a lot of Wallace because he was really enamored by the fact that this person who should not be so popular is so popular. I mean, he's going to like Wisconsin, Michigan, all these northern states, and he's filling up these giant stadiums with people for his rallies. And Thompson's like, it's like a weird Janis Joplin concert. Hmm. Like at the same time, he is the priest and Jesus in the strange (laughs) church he's established. And I mean, one of the reasons why I think a lot of Democrats are uncomfortable with him is the fact that uh, Wallace may have been one of the more popular uh, candidates, at least at a state level, which is why he kept getting reelected for governor amongst black voters. Hmm. And that's what freaks people out. In yeah. 1968, when he uh, runs again as, you know, because his wife, so his wife, when she ran in um you know, when she ran for governor, that was the first year that they had eliminated poll taxes and literacy tests. So now the large majority of the black population in Alabama is able to vote. She wins a majority of the black vote. And then when he runs after her, he wins a majority of the black vote, like 70%. And he will continue to get that every election until the eighties when he just stops running because he's old and tired and doesn't want to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Because um, a large majority of the black population in Alabama, when they looked at him, they were like, you know what? He says all this shit when he's on camera, when he's at rallies, but he's the one that put more technical schools and community colleges in black communities. Mm-hmm. He's the one that created more jobs, paving roads and doing infrastructure. He's the one who gave teachers a raise. Mm-hmm. He's the one who's actually giving out free textbooks to students who were poor so they were like yeah he could do all this other stuff but ultimately his policies are actually helping us mm, yeah and that's just one of those crazy things that i learned and it's like i didn't even realize that when i lived in alabama i lived in alabama for two years between 2013 and 2015 right outside of selma in a town called marion 
and I always like you, you, you hear it from people as they're talking about those days and everything. And it was just so strange because yeah. growing up, what do I hear? Oh, he's the American supervillain. He's mm-hmm. the villain of the civil rights movement. Right. But then I discovered this shit and I'm like, this is, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely insane. And, and like this it, would actually happen. Yeah. It kind of, again, it's kind of parallels to Trump because right. um, the only thing you hear about Wallace and mainstream is that he was racist he's a fucking racist and you you never you never picture like you said 70 percent of the african-american population voting for this racist yet um that's all they say about trump is and uh, and we're quick to say we are not pro-trumpers we're not i mean we're just not um but for everyone to just be like well you're african-american why would you vote for trump because he's a racist well yeah, you hear a lot of people coming out and being like, well, he's done this for the African-American culture. He's done uh, right. like pri- his prison reforms and all other right. a bunch of other policies and dropped the unemployment rate down to what, like 3.6 percent at his at his best, which is virtually zero unemployment. That 3.6 percent is basically the zero line. It's just people that are in school or don't want to get jobs or it's basically. um voluntary unemployment so for like you were saying about wallace i mean um they can say all this stuff that he says is racist but what is he doing like what is he doing for the the for the population what is he doing for the african-american population so uh that's very interesting yeah and it's almost the you know the difference is the uh the media today and how that you know the what they sprout about trump Mm-hmm. And that's what kind of turned the tide from Wallace then to Trump now. Yeah, there's um there's a story. Well, there there are many like small stories spattered throughout the book about Wallace's life, and um, one of them is I think it was the 1968 campaign where he's uh yes it's 68 where he's running as an independent against Herbert Humphrey and Richard Nixon. And he's, I think he's in New York state or something. And he's at this rally. And I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just crazy people everywhere. And what he intentionally did was he would have the media like corralled off in a little fenced in area right in the middle of the rally, Hmm. because what he wanted to do is he wanted to weaponize the media in a way, because he knew that all he got was negative coverage. So what he wanted to do is he wanted to not only intimidate the media, but he also wanted to show um you know his his supporters it's like the media doesn't control me i control them Hmm. it's like you know you don't cancel me i cancel you in a way and um there's this one reporter from the new york times there wallace had a funny nickname for them he called them the moscow times he said they were mouthpieces for communist russia so um you know people are you know shaking the fences they're scaring the camera and reporters and Wallace looks down and he's like, oh, it's the good old Moscow times here to <laughs> call us all, you know, white rednecks and trash and all this other stuff saying I've got nothing to say. And um, the guy from the New York Times, he's there. He brought his kid to the rally, you know, like talk about strange. Take your kid to work day. Right, so shit. the kid is watching this and the kid's just terrified because he's like, oh, my God, these people hate my dad and they want to hurt my dad. So at, after the rally um that's at this hotel the the reporter and his son are staying at the same hotel where the rally was but also wallace is staying there so they go back to their room they rest for a bit and they get a knock at the door 
And as the father opens up the door, they see Wallace's press secretary for the campaign. And he's like, hey, um, Governor Wallace would like to speak to you and please bring your son. So the guy is like, oh, shit, like, I don't I don't want to talk to this guy, even if I get an interview, like he wants my son to come like what the hell. Mm-hmm. So they go up to the to the like the, the wedding suite or the presidential suite of the hotel and they see Wallace sitting in the corner in this rock in this rocking chair. And the, the kid, he's like, you know, five or six. He, he looks over to him and he gestures with him with his hand. He's like, hey, hey, come here, son. I want, I want to talk to you. So he picks the kid up, puts him on his lap, starts rocking the chair and says, son, you know, listen, all that stuff I was saying about your daddy, all those mean things I was saying about your bag, don't think nothing of it. That's just politics. Hmm. That's so, and, so shitty. And that's so true, too. Yeah. That is like, it, it's one of those moments where like my skin began to crawl because I put myself in the position of that reporter who is witnessing this and I would have, you know, one grab my son and then toss that guy out the window. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. in a way it's one of those strange, really honest moments mm-hmm. where Wallace, you know, one, yeah, maybe it's a little bit sweet because he felt bad for the kid, but at the same time, it's like, he's willing to do or say anything right. yeah. to make himself better and to potentially win. Right. And that is that that's just something that's sick. 